One time I went to the uh, went to Plymouth Plantation and all the actors were there and they had um, it wasn't Bradford but it was the other guy that was the elder I forget his name but one of the I'm sorry yeah Elder Brewster that's right and uh, and he he was beautiful the way he he was all he had his hair all kind of kind of Dutch long you know white and he had a good a good trimmed pilgrim goatee and um, looked like in the pictures which I'm pretty sure he looked at the picture to figure out how to do it. But, but um, he, uh, he, in, in Plymouth Plantation, they speak in an English accent. And, um, and they try, well, the, the, the pilgrims do. If you go over to the Wampanoag village, they don't. They speak like from Massachusetts. And they've got Red Sox tattoos and stuff. But anyway, um, the, the pilgrim, uh, Brewster, was in his uh, little house, his little, you know, the little hut that they have. And he had his three books and uh, we talked about the Bible a little bit. And, you know, they pretend like we're in a time machine. They're like, oh, you must be visitors from far away. And, and uh, we had a great conversation. And I talked to him about the, um, the um, <clears throat> uh, fort, which was also the church meeting house. And so it was a great place because they have cannons in the, in the attic because, because they could see the water, they could see the, the bay. And, um, and the idea was that that fort is the high point where you will... Um, defend from in, invasion from ships and so they had a number of cannons up there and I think that's really cool if you're going to meet in a church that has cannons in the roof and um, um, and everybody came to church in their um, in their Sunday clothes when they would assemble on a Sunday on a Sunday morning and I think they thought of it as Sabbath but they would get together and they would wear armor and bring their rifles or their, their blunderbusses. They bring their, bring their flintlock, whatever that was at that point in the development of gunpowder. And so everybody came with their, um, with their cannon uh, to come here from the canon of Scripture. Isn't that funny? Uh, you can switch back and forth. Um, but um, so because they were in th- under threat, they were never sure um, how secure they were. So security, when you have uh, women and children and, and everybody, security is a big deal. You have to have watch all the time. I used to live in a situation in the army where we had to have 360 degree, that's all the way around the circle, security all the time. And so somebody's always in the different machine gun positions and it gets tiring and, and wearisome. And so you, 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 know, you kind of alternate between the pastor putting us to sleep and then, well, I'll go on watch now and being bored by watch. Well, maybe I could go listen to the pastor preach because he would preach all day on Sunday and uh, much like we do here for a whole hour um, per service. But anyway, um, um, what Elder Brewster said was, I said, it's really interesting about the pulpit. There's a little ball, there's a, 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 a wooden carved ball that this thing sits on as its pedestal. Is this ornate kind of shaker looking artistic thing where they've got this almost like tulip bulb that is the pulpit that he would climb this little bitty scary looking you know rickety set of stairs to get up in this pulpit uh thing and um and it was just old probably european style uh post-reformation um architecture but but he would be up in this thing and, and he was up high you know up high above up high and above everyone and uh, elder brewster i'm getting to my point he had this really interesting theology he suggested that that this actor was trying to you know be researched and know his character and everything and i don't doubt he was right he's read a lot more about the guy than i have he said well you see <clears throat> when um we preach or prophesy we prophesy he said okay i said that's interesting he said well we call it prophesying and that's when we just speak but i do that on the ground I do that on the ground level, but then I go up 
into the giant or the little bitty ornate rickety steps to come upstairs to preach the word, to read the scriptures, because now I'm closer to God and I preach the scriptures up on high. And so that's not my idea. I said, well, that did, I, I didn't say it, but I said, well, that's a different definition of prophesying than the scriptures because the scriptures are the prophetic word of God. And so hopefully you understand the theology of what a prophet is. It's somebody that speaks directly what God gives them by revelation. And what we do is we write down their words and that's why you have Mark, the gospel of Mark, who's not an apostle, but under the apostle Peter as a prophet in the New Testament. Well, anyway, we had a really interesting in a conversation and I thought, you know, that's, that's an interesting theological suggestion about whether you're on the floor or up above. There's a cultural way to look at it. Well, here I am down with the people. I'm among you. I should even have an uncomfortable seat to sit in and you could stare, we could stare at each other. I could be uncomfortable and you could be uncomfortable. You know, all of a sudden you're thinking about your lower back vertebrae, right? And how that sciatica stuff kicks in right about 15 minutes in. And just me, is it only me? Anyway, so... so <laughs> um, there's the economic idea or the, the cultural thing that I'm down here with you and I'm one of the people and now I'm going to go up and now, see, I'm now above you. I'm higher up than you. And some people are really sensitive about these things and they think that's the difference. Actually, do you know why this thing is up high like this? It's to accommodate the space that we're in so that people up there, the maximum number of people up here can see the guy on the pulpit. Now, some people don't want to see the pastor. We have seats for that too, okay? There, there's, if you go... If you kind of lean down and you go right about where that second beam, third beam is from the corner, I can't see you unless I do some, you know, some, some intentionality. And so this is a, what I'm saying is this is not about me being above anyone or below anyone or any of that. It's not that I'm closer to God than you are. So now I'm reading the scriptures and now I'm a mediator. That's not the point either. The point is, is pragmatism. It really is wisdom. How do we get the most information out to the most people? That's how we've always done it. And that's our building philosophy. What is the best use of the space to glorify God the best in the culture in which we find ourselves? And I got to tell you, the building project for something like here would be a totally different thing than if we were in the Maori people or if we were in Africa. We would have a totally different expectation. We'd have a really big, probably shaded pavilion and, uh, and some really snazzy, loud colored shirts because of culture. And so <clears throat> I don't think um, when I use this space that I'm, well, we're just doing family Bible time. So it's, you know, it's just a little dressed down. That's not really the point. It is intended to be more interactive, but there's a pragmatism. If you stay for both hours, you get a different effect. And that's good because it gets kind of hard to kind of do the same thing constantly. That's just wisdom. I'm just being pragmatic. I'm just being pragmatic. You know what I mean by pragmatic? I'm just doing the thing that seems to be the best with the principles that we all agree to. Now, what's interesting is when you think that your understanding of a principle is in conflict with someone else's application of the principle. Oh, well, he shouldn't be down on the floor because he's preaching the word and he's the pastor and that's a violation of principle. And what we'll always do in this church is say, well, I really want to respect your uh, right to have your perspective, but I want to understand where you're getting your principle. Where are you getting your principle? I think we make our decisions on the basis of wisdom, and wisdom is the skill to live our lives in the presence of God at his, for his glory and his, and his power. And that means that we're going to do what we do according to what he said he wants from us, and we're really clear in the Bible that he wants us to be about 
the making of disciples. So I'm going to try to do whatever I can to generate interest, to stimulate concentration, to um, use the necessary teaching methods that are at our disposal to, uh, to, to, to help you, really to stir you up to love and good works, which is why we assemble. Now again, that's my introduction. Let's go to Psalm 51. And in theme and content, a prayer that in general you can almost directly apply to yourself. In some of the particulars, it cannot apply to you, as I've said. The part that doesn't apply to you is the request for David, an Old Testament saint, to not lose the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can't lose the Holy Spirit. You're sealed unto the day of redemption by the Spirit. And so you have a different type of ministry of the Spirit, but yet... Notice fellowship with God and the breakdown in sin directs him to think about the work of the Holy Spirit in him and the ministry he is conducting. So we're looking at Psalm 53 in some detail. We read it in its entirety on uh, Wednesday night, and we're looking through a few of the verses slowly to understand and kind of juice it for its content. And uh, we are talking about Christian spirituality. So the big thing about sin in the church age or in the Old Testament is it breaks fellowship with God. That's always the problem of personal sin for believers. Personal sin for believers. And it's, this is one of the most divisive doctrines in, in all of Christendom, the doctrine of sin. The doctrine of sin because of the different ways people have approached it. And here's the big thing that we want to be very careful about. We are all having experiences we're all having a lot of experiences from the very complexity of the nature of life. And for example, your conscience is calibrated to a certain degree on certain issues. And mine is different. Mine is calibrated the way it's calibrated. That's the difference of individual personhood. That's how we're made. And so what bothers you a lot may bother me a little and vice versa. What bothers me a lot may not be even on your radar. And you, why are you so upset about that? And well, that's, I'll give you the principles and I can't live it for you, but I can just be who I am about these things. And so the challenge of dealing with the doctrine of sin is it's part of our experience and it's, it's difficult to stop our experience as the source of information and go to the scriptures and let the word of God speak to it. But David does that beautifully in Psalm 51. He says, let's think about this theologically from God's perspective and it's going to change us. Psalm 51 is, listen, it is, if nothing else, a request for divine intervention. Divine intervention. And I want to talk about that just a little bit. You ever want God to stop it, to stop whatever the, the trouble is? God, you have to show up. You have to intervene. God, if you want anything to happen with this old meeting house, you apparently are going to have to do it. We've tried to put, to put a ramp but the city said no. We don't like the ramp where you're trying to put it because of the windows. We've tried, we've tried to figure out how to get uh, uh, lavatory services up on this level for people to have access problems. The David Tongren Invitational Lavatory, we, we were joking about it back, back a long time ago when he said, I can't go anymore unless there's a place I can go. <laughs> can't go to church unless there's a place to go. We've tried. They said, no, you can't touch it because this and this and this. And so God is going to have to intervene. Just by way of example, he's going to have to do something if we're going to address these issues. Well, it's been fine for 200 years. Wait a second, wait a second. For the first 100, there was outhouses. And that was culturally acceptable. Like, outhouses, go outside in the snow, trudge through that you know, 
the end of the little ice age thing we had and trudge through the snow and go to the place where the church folk have dug holes and and take care of things i mean that's it's it's been fine for two were they saying that 100 years ago well we don't need to put or whatever 80 years ago when they put indoor plumbing were they saying when did they put indoor plumbing were you here before Before your time good (laughs) but were you there Because they had the carriage sheds. They had the places to park the horses and buggies. Um, I know that because Tony uh, wrecked into it when he was learning to drive. And that's one of my favorite stories of the church uh, lore, of the recent memory. Anyway, it, it, what I'm saying is if, God's go- if it's going to happen, God's going to have to do it because building is expensive, and, um, and, but, but life is expensive. And so um, we're looking for divine intervention. We are asking for divine intervention for Jan Gardner nobody they don't know at the mayo clinic they don't know at johns hopkins nobody yale every every specialist that looks at jan's case and tries to review her file says we have no idea what has caused this to your body to your life we don't know what what this is the last report was we think it's done whatever it was and if you spend a little bit of time with jan that's not a satisfactory answer given the extreme condition that her skeleton and her muscles have have been put through and we want divine intervention god's going to have to show up well these are temporal concerns uh, building our bodies it's a tent both of those are tents that are going to be uh, uh, completed their their function is going to be complete and we're going to have an eternal um, life that isn't part of these physical temporal needs you see what i'm saying these are tents that we're worried about but god's going to have to fix the tent now in psalm 51 david is praying for divine intervention but it's not about something insignificant you know like whether our body is healthy i should say less significant it's about the need for cleansing it's about if i don't have god restore me i cannot be restored see this is the kind of divine intervention that the bible mostly addresses where god saves us where god concerns us with himself so that we can have a relationship with him and you can't have that unless he does something unless he acts and so david's asking for this cleansing for this work now um, if you read leviticus 4 and you read about the sin offerings and the guilt offerings and the various offerings in the levitical system one of the greatest um, challenges to our, our understanding of the levitical code is the statements about the sin and guilt offerings that say, that say, for a sin that was done uh, unknowingly, a sin in ignorance, or a sin that was not premeditated. In other words, the high-handed sin, the sin of David and Bathsheba, wouldn't have been addressed by these Levitical offerings. I first learned that in seminary. I had to go all the way to seminary to learn that. I could have read it in Leviticus 4 what now wait wait wait. the sin offering you do the sin offering before the other offerings and the cleansing of the priest yeah therefore therefore sins of 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 uh ignorance mainly and that's the idea you you don't know what is defilement before god you don't know his righteousness sufficiently to know where you're out of bounds so the sin offering covers everything even the things i don't know about but when i directly revolt against god when i directly oppose him in what they call what theologians call a high-handed sin that's not really what the the offerings are talking about and i think 
Alan Ross has pointed this out. I think this is what David is dealing with. He can't go bring the sin offering and the guilt offering. He did what he did fully aware. And he needs God to actually restore him so that at the end of the psalm, we can offer praises and, and, and sacrifices. Sacrifices and burnt offerings you haven't desired. <clears throat> There's a little historical context for this psalm in terms of the, the, the offering system, and Levi- the Levitical system. But you know, even in this day and age, when, in the day of David, when there was this mediation to come to God, you had to present an offering the way they had in this mediation. David goes directly to God and says, save me. Most of the Psalms are prayers to God. They're not prayers through the priests to God. They're prayers to God, and Israel is singing them. This is their songbook. So in Psalm 51, you have this request for divine intervention for God to restore David to fellowship with, him, with, with himself. And the big word for this is cleansing. Clean me up. This is always depicted in the scriptures that sin somehow makes me dirty. Sin makes me dirty. I may not feel the grit of sand between my toes, but it still may be there. There's a, that's, the, that's the metaphor, that's the image, is God is clean and we're dirty. So to come to him, to be with him, to walk with him, we have to be clean. That's the picture. It's always the picture, and that's what David is requesting. This is why we take such a big, uh, we make such a big deal of confession of sin in 1 John 1, 9. Because of the need for cleansing. <clears throat> I don't think anyone here is struggling with the applicability of 1 John 1, 9 to your experience. But a lot of people do. The flagship, first ba- or fa- the flagship Southern Baptist Church in uh, a lot of the, the latter part of the 20th century was in Dallas, Texas. First Baptist Dallas. W.A. Criswell, pastor. You know what W.A. stands for? Wally Amos Criswell. See that? You might go with your initials if you're Wally Amos. They told him in seminary, you can't... You, you, you are not going to work out as a preacher. Today in seminary, they say the quintessential Baptist preacher is W.A. Criswell. That's what they teach. He had a quavery voice. It was natural. It was just who he was. When he would raise his voice, it was real. And people would respond. It would, he somehow had a way, just in his delivery, of eliciting an emotional response from a huge swath of Baptist folk. Tens of thousands of people in this church. You can pull up his, his sermons and hear what he did with the Bible. You can even go on YouTube and watch him say, here's how I prepare. Most of his preparation, um, I think for a Sunday sermon, was reading the sermons of others. He would say that in his big extensive library. He would go and read the sermons that others had delivered through the generations, through the ages of church history on the passage he wanted to preach and that would give him these ideas because he's preaching. It's a literary genre. That's what you're trying to do. So, so, so Chris will, would, um, would do this, and um, you can go get his sermon archive, and I've listened to several things, and um, <clears throat> do not have the same philosophy of ministry as him, and I don't. I have the same views on many things as him, but I don't have the same philosophy of ministry, and I'm not 
gifted the way he was. I don't do what he did. But um, one thing I'll do is check his theology. How's he approaching the text? And when you go check him out on 1 John 1, 9, you can't really tell. He did two or three sermons. They're the same sermon. He delivered them three or four times over 60 years on 1 John 1, 9, and I can't tell if it's for believers or unbelievers. We're so, it's Southern Baptist. We're trying to get these people saved. Got to give the gospel on Sunday. And we need to be confessional kind of people and, and, and convicted of our sin. And I'm like, well, but I'm asking a specific question. Is John talking to Christians or to people that need to believe in Christ as their Savior? And I can't tell from how he presents it. This is um, what I hear from time to time from people that are otherwise like-minded. The only verse you've got for confession of sin for believers is 1 John 1, 9. And that means that you, it's not that important. Paul doesn't say it etc. My point is that um, if you look for the theme of cleansing from sin, it's everywhere. Sin makes us dirty. And you've got two choices with regard to sin as a Christian. You can say, I'm not really sure I'm a Christian, so that's why I'm sinning. Or you can say, no, God said what he said about what Jesus did, and I believe in Jesus as my Savior. And so my sin is Something post-salvation. I'm actually committing personal sins as a Christian. Isn't that ugly? Wouldn't it be nicer if I could just preach the gospel about all you sinners and hopefully those, the, those of you that haven't yet trusted in Christ, you finally believe? See, that's a limitation of theology. If my theology only has sin gets you go to hell and so you gotta believe in Jesus and repent of your sin and, if, if, and so that's what we, that's a very limited theology. It's not what the Bible's doing. David <laughs> has already written Psalm 23 by the time he writes Psalm 51. David is no question regenerate. If you have Old Testament regeneration, and I believe they did, then David has eternal life. He has the Holy Spirit in an endowment ministry where he as the king is endued with the Spirit of God, equipped, clothed to do the work of being the king of Israel. So this is post-faith, post-initial faith sin. This is uh, what you and I are involved in. And that's why it speaks to us so clearly. All right, let's, uh, let's look at some of the, the observations we can make from the passage. Wake up. It's time for you to do the work that you can do of observation. Verse one, we have a summary request. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your mercy, wipe clean my transgressions. I have done the work of bringing the Hebrew into English in the order in which David said it. I think that's significant. And I want you to do some observations with me. What do you see in the verse? What are some observations? Don't interpret it. Just observe. We're going to make a distinction. Well, I think that the sin he's taught, don't, don't interpret it. Don't tell me what it means. Tell me what it says. What do you see that's up there on the screen in, in the English? Okay. There's a request. It's a request in what form? How does he ask it? Is this how you ask God? Is this how you ask um, someone for a glass of water? Give me something to drink. Is that how you do it in this culture? 
It's a command. It's an imperative. He's not commanding God like he's... When you're not God and you're under God and you command or give an imperative to God, what is that indicating? It's not, not an authority question. What is it? Save me! It's, it, it's urgency. I think it's, I think it's help. You don't have to say, please help if you're drowning. You just say, help! All right? All right? Awesome. What else do we observe? This is so fun. Yes, sir. The recognition of needing grace. So he sees. There's something that he is aware of. What do you notice about the language? Just in terms of style. Yeah. He's humble. Yeah, there's a humility involved. He's fully... And this is the summary statement for the whole thing. If I say the word repetition, can you see one? Where's the, what's the repetition? Okay, the thought of mercy and loving kindness, which are attributes of God. That's repeated. It's not exactly the sta- said the same way, but there it rhymes and, and thought. That's how Hebrew poetry works. What else is re- what's repeated word for word? According to, well, that Pastor Day. That's just you in English translating it the same both times. Why do you think I translated it the same way both times? Well, you'd like style or perspective. No, it's not. I may, but that's not why. Because I'm just putting the Hebrew into English because he, that's what he does. Right here. K and K. Both of those are the according to participles, or, or prep, sorry, prepositions, not part of the prepositions that you would uh, say. And they're back-to-back words. According to your chesed, according to the greatness, the rove, the greatness. And so you have this repetition. According to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your mercy, Okay, be gracious and wipe clean. Be gracious and wipe clean are the actions. Aren't they the stated actions? What does David want? I want you to be gracious and I want you to wipe clean. Those are the verbs, if you will. Isn't that fair? Are we just observing? Don't do this with the scriptures. Pull it apart and look in all the pieces. This is, this is exactly what you do. This is exactly, I do this constantly it's awesome the more time you spend in observation the easier will be your interpretation because you're actually listening to what God hath said and notice that if I'm careful I won't put words in God's mouth I'll just listen to what he actually says isn't that great all right so this is what that looks like when you compare what's compared be gracious is the request wipe clean is the request that's grammatically parallel that's why I put them both in red What's blue? According to and according to the character attributes of God, which in this structure, this inverted structure, they call chiasm or chiasm. A lot can be made of this and it can be overdone, but he does invert the thought and this is the rhyme. Your greatness, your loving kindness. I think that's really cool. The focus is God's attributes. In the summary statement of my requests, for deliverance. And what, is, what deliverance is necessary here? What does David need deliverance from? Him, from him, from what he's done. I made a mess. Save, save me from what I've done. Divine intervention. Isn't that awesome? 
Yes, yes, it's not, yes, Pastor, that is awesome. Wipe clean my transgressions. Another thing that you can observe in terms of structure when you're really asking questions about a passage, be gracious is a very general request. Be gracious to me can mean anything. But the specific thing that's in the rhyme is wipe clean. Be gracious in the sense that I need you to clean me up. How, how humiliated do you have to be to tell someone, I, I can't clean myself, could you please clean me? It kind of makes it dramatic, doesn't it? But that's where we are. We're little babies. This is an experience I have quite a bit. Okay. Clean me up. You, you who have had children at home and you're, you're beyond that. Remember those days when through the house you hear this, this plaintive whine through the walls. I'm finished. If you're a little kid. And you know what? If it's your, some of you are like, what is he talking about? We're talking about toilet hygiene when the work is done. Now we have to do the paperwork, okay, for little kids. That's how it is. <laughs> Guess what? It's an honor. It's a privilege. It is. It's a privilege to be a parent who is in training for this child to live life. This is one of the ultimate basic life skills. I'm thankful that everyone here has figured this out. Your parents did a good job. But every time, now, now as the children multiply, you could have multiple I'm finished going on at one time. Wait a second, I'm gonna do the first one and then I'll take care of the second one. Right? It's just how we are. We were all there. The reason I'm talking about it is because this puts us in that frame of mind that you have to be in before God to understand who he is. He's your dad. Of course you go to your father and say, clean me up. But the, but the focus in, in David's mind is God's character, his attributes. <clears throat> I have to do something with David's um, adverb here, cherva. So very thoroughly is how I've done it. Wash me thoroughly. But he starts with the, 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 the sentence in verse 2, starts with this intensifier very thoroughly. Wash me clean, wash me clean from my own, from my iniquity, my sin, my guilt. And from my sins of spelling, cleanse me. From my sins, from my sin, cleanse me. He uses two different words for sin, so I've used two different words for sin. Guilt or iniquity and um, chata. The, the, this is the word that's usually translated sin. All right, can you do some observation with me? Some of you are looking and you're like, there are 19 verses in this. We're gonna do all this. We're gonna work through it. What is it? What's the, what are you looking at in the text? What do you see? Okay, what's the repetition? What's that? Okay, the two thoughts. What thoughts are being repeated? Give me, give me two words that are rhymed. Wash and 
cleanse, the way I've translated, wash and cleanse, two different words in Hebrew, two different words in English, wash and cleanse. What's another comparison? Sin and iniquity, right? From my sin. What's his focus in this verse? Well, when you look at it, what's being rhymed, wash me and cleanse me again are the requests, but he did, the, he did an interesting thing. On the outside is the request, just like in verse one, but on the inside, the focus, my sin, my need. So God's attributes and my need. Now, I don't want to go too far with this comparison, but verse one focuses on God's attributes. Verse two focuses on my attributes, my sin. That's a huge theme in scripture. One of my favorite confession of sin passages is Isaiah 6. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips. The angel touches his mouth with the coal. You've been cleansed. You confess you're cleansed from your sin. Watch it, Isaiah chapter 6, the commissioning for Isaiah. What is Isaiah aware of when he sees God? He sees the attributes of God, as it were. He sees God on his throne, glorified. What does he see immediately in himself? His sin. God's attributes show us our sin, and that is the problem with evangelism. (laughs) You tell me all day God loves me, but the problem I've got is I don't want to deal with my sin in in front of a holy God. Who is he? Who is Yahweh that I should serve him or should obey him, says Pharaoh? Who is Yahweh that I should do what he says? That's our problem. The difference between me and God is I've got a problem. And that's offensive. See, David's there. He's humble. He says, I know, I know the problem is me. Are we there? Do we know that the problem between us and God is really us? And why is it that way? Because he's righteous. Because that's what he's like. Because he's perfect and holy. We're not. And he's not just righteous. He's just. He acts on that righteousness and condemns sin. That's what we're studying in Romans is that the law could not save me because of my flesh. The law couldn't do it. It could tell me what the standard was, but I couldn't meet it. God did by sending his son in the flesh of sinful men, in the likeness of sinful flesh, to die for us. He paid for our sins on the cross. But this is the, this, we've just surfaced in Psalm 51 the need for the gospel because the problem between us and God is us. For my transgressions, I myself know. I've got to do something with the fact that he throws a, a, a standalone pronoun in the middle. That means he's being emphatic. It's, it's part of his rhyming and rhythm structure and his song. But he throws, you don't need to do this in Hebrew or in Greek, but he does. He puts I, ani, I. So I translate I myself because the I know is in, this, is in the verb. For my transgressions, I myself know, and my sin is before me continually. My sin is before me continually. All right, so we've been primed by David's structure so far to see he's saying things twice. So let's question, is he saying something twice here? Is there a two-time thing to look at that's being compared? Two thoughts that we're, we're to think through in our Hebrew comparison mind? What are the thoughts that are being compared? Transgressions and sins. Line A, transgressions. Line B, sins, okay? What's the verbal side? I know. That's the verb. I know. What's the thing down here? It's before me. Are those two different ways of saying the same thing? I know it and it's before me? 
I'm aware it's, it's in my face. You see what I mean? See how that, it's a poem. And so you could say, I know it and I know it. That would be American music today. We just, no art, just I know and I know and three chords and let's, let's all go home. But David says, I know and it's before me continually. It's the same thought, but it's, it's, it's artistic the way he does it. God, you know, does God really want us to think in terms of art? I don't know. Yeah, right here. One of those is to say I'm aware. The other is to say I can't stop being aware. It's printed on the inside of my eyelids. So when I close my eyes, I still see it. See? I can't get away from it. And so he doesn't do an, an inverted structure. He just, my transgression, my sin, I know before me continually. I think John is thinking through a lot of what David is talking about when he writes 1 John chapter 1. We say we have no sin. We say we haven't sinned. We confess our sins. See that 1 John 1, that's about you and me. And we need to be like David and say, I'm looking at it. I know, I see. And that is a repentance right there. Most of us find ourselves from time to time, if not all of us, in a frame of mind where we won't look at it. I'm okay. If I have to look at my sin, it's not gonna be okay. I won't be okay. I, I can't get up in the morning like that. I can't live like that. And without God, I agree with you. You basically have to do what the world does and not look at your weaknesses, your sinfulness, your brokenness. See, we talk about this constantly in this church because of this verse and things like it. But we don't wallow in our brokenness because we're all saying the only solution is Christ and we're constantly reveling in Christ. He died for our sins and rose from the dead. We're in Christ. But with, you see the need for Christ. And, and I'm talking as a Christian, you see the ongoing need for the work of Christ in your life. That the blood of Jesus' his Son goes on cleansing us from all sin. Now, Contextually, David's talking about what he did with Bathsheba to Uriah, the Hittite. Okay. Whew. Doesn't apply to me then. Hadn't done that stuff. Well, you can't. Let's, let's go to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. If you think it, there's a problem with you and God, whether you've actually physically carried it out or not. So no, this, is, this helps us all. And this is an interesting way of redeeming the situation. Um, let me close and bring you down to verse 13. By telling God this prayer of a private uh, intercession with God, uh, a private moment of petition with God, and bringing it to the attention of the entire nation and everyone who believes in God thereafter, this has become a very public, private session with God. Very public and this very act of contrition, of repentance, of change of mind, of, of regret, as he will express, becomes what he says in verse 13, fix me and I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Isn't that remarkable? When I read the story in Samuel of David and Bathsheba, I am 
so mortified at how this is so public and so well known. Everybody in heaven will know a couple things about David. That was awesome about Goliath, but wow, you really botched it with Bathsheba. But notice how God has redeemed it here by, by learning the song of David's recovery. We're being taught God's ways. He's teaching the transgressors. Sinners are being converted. That is grace. That is the answer to the prayer. And we will continue this on Wednesday night. Father, we thank you for the conscience that you've given us, for equipping it and calibrating with your word. Help us as a church family think these things through and become gracious in response because you've lavished us so wonderfully. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.